What you just heard was a clip from a musical performance by patients, many of whom suffer from speech impairment as a result of brain injury, who are currently undergoing music therapy. But more on that later. This is WIG, What is Global Health? The podcast of the Journal of Global Health, episode 15. This episode is the first of a three-part series on the role of music in medicine and the relationship between music and the brain. I'm Cynthia Lee. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Conceda Tomeno, a pioneer in the field of music therapy. She is the executive director of the Institute of Music and Neurologic Function and senior vice president for music therapy at the Centralite Health System. Dr. Tomeno discusses her role in the foundation of music therapy as a field and her experience as a practitioner. We explore the neuroscience of the effect that music has on our brains, as well as the often overlooked power of music in medicine and health. Good. So we are here with Dr. Tomeno, yes. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Perfect, yeah. um, who is a very prominent, I would say, music therapist. Um, so let's get started with the questions right away. Sure. Um, so what exactly would you say music is, and what makes it so appealing to such a wide audience? Sure. Well, music obviously is so pervasive in all of our lives. Uh, very few people, even people who have hearing problems, um, don't listen to music in some capacity. Uh, the other thing that's so interesting about music, especially when we're talking about neuroscience and, and music in the brain, is that music, in order for us to appreciate it, it's processed by so many areas of the brain, which makes it a very interesting and possibly powerful tool to use in therapy because of all the different ways music taps into uh, networks and areas of the brain that are functioning in people who may have different kinds of deficits. Right. Um, so, what made you go into the field of music therapy? I know that's like not the very first thing I think of when I think of neuroscience or right. any type of science. It's such like an interdisciplinary thing, um, where you take music, which is such like artistic pursuit, and then mix it with neuroscience sure. for music therapy. So, what made you interested in this? Sure. Field? Well, you know, I, I I tell this story a lot, but as an undergrad, I was a pre-med bio biology major. Oh wow! And um, had played trumpet in high school. Also, I took music lessons on the accordion then when I was a child. But uh, when I went to SUNY Stony Brook uh, for sciences, I was interested in taking trumpet lessons, so I ended up needing... Well, I was told by the professor that I couldn't take trumpet lessons unless I was a music major. So I ended up double majoring in music and science for about a year or so until I realized I was absolutely hooked on music and didn't know what to do with my life. <laughs> and uh, my, the end of my junior year, or in my junior year, found out about the field of music therapy, which was still fairly new. Um, I went to college in the 70s, and the field of music therapy was formally organized in the United States in 1950, but there were still very few schools on the East Coast that had programs in music therapy. So uh, I ended up getting my master's, I got out of Stony Brook um, at NYU, New York University, uh, and my first clinical placement, well, my second, my first clinical placement was, was with children, but my second clinical placement was with older adults in a nursing home with end-stage Alzheimer's disease. Oh. And they were minimally responsive, um, very agitated, behaviorally very disturbed as far as their ability to connect to the world around them. And yet, my job was to play music for them 
and to do something to change the atmosphere wow. of the place. But I started singing the song and playing music, and the people who were extremely agitated calmed down, and the people who uh, seemed to be catatonic and not aware of anything opened their eyes, and half of them started singing the words to the song. So just a, just a, 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 a casual observer would say, isn't that interesting? They, they know the song. But here I am with the science mind and said, but how do they know the song if they have no cognitive processing? Why people with end-stage dementia supposedly can process information. So how are they processing noise as music? How can they understand that the stream of sound is a song, and not only recognize it as a song, but then recall the words. So right then, this is in the mid-70s, about 1977, 1978. So imagine somebody like myself, totally intrigued by why people with such severe brain damage could still respond to music, when right. nothing else in the world made sense to them. So what was it about music that informed the brain and allowed these individuals to come in that moment back to some level of, of connection. There was nothing written <laughs> I can about music. And there was not very little written about the brain, per se, in 1978. And then, so that was my first, um, you know, sort of my epiphany of, uh, this is really important, we have to, I have to figure this out. And it's just my very good fortune that I came here in 1980, and Dr. Oliver Sacks was the staff neurologist, who had just finished working um, and, and publishing a book called Awakenings. Awakenings. I have read that right. book and I've watched the movie. Right. Enjoyed both. Right. Okay. It's really amazing. So here's, here I am in this place. <laughs> Just talk about, you know, um, serendipitous events. Right. <laughs> uh, here's a neurologist, a doctor, who is also asking the same questions. Wow. Why does music and art um, awaken lost minds and lost bodies? Right? So together he and I, we you know, eventually um, worked a lot together and were really, really curious. And there really wasn't anything. I mean, Oliver, Dr. Sachs had, had read and everybody's work at that point. I mean, really brilliant. Um, but still, there were no clear answers about why, why this happens or how it happens. And early on in the, in the 80s, we tried to enlist some scientists to study this, and even they didn't have the tools back in the 80s to really mm -hmm. study this. They could study um, very specific um, auditory perception of pitch, or they could study um, the difference between um, the spoken word and the sung word, you know, where does that, dom where's the dominance for that in the brain, but nothing that could really translate to what we were doing and what we were observing. Well, so you were basically almost like a pioneer in, in, your in this area. In this area, yeah. Well, that's sure. really exciting. So um, I'm just wondering because it was such a new field back then yes. when you first became interested. Yeah. Um, were there a lot of other like neurologists um, who just kind of jumped on board, or were people very doubtful about no, this? No. Um, well, everybody, you know, people were doubtful, but there were other people around the same time who were starting to look at music and the brain, for mm -hmm. sure. Now there were people. Um, Irving Weinberger out in, in California at uh, University of Irvine, California, California Irvine, uh, obviously was doing things. There were uh, Maziata and, and Robert Tutori and people who were starting to do uh, research on 
perceptual elements of sound and brain function. So this was all happening, but don't forget, internet isn't available in 19... You know, there's no way for people to really to connect on a global way or to even be informed of each other's work unless you were in those communities, right. you know, and, and actually knew each other. So um, the idea of, of science is being interested in complex stimuli, which is what music is, and having the tools to be able to study that um, started to get the scientists in and of themselves very interested about what were the neural processes that underlie music perception. Clinicians, on the other hand, were observing these phenomena and studying them clinically in research, but couldn't say um, why this behavior, why these responses were recoverable, or, you know, that this was possible. So um, Oliver and I had got permission from Back then, it used to be the Abraham Family of Health Services, now Centralite Health System, to form, with the help of the board of directors, an, an institute for music and neurologic function back in 19... It's 1993 that we started, but we incorporated in 1995, whose sole purpose was to bring the worlds of neuroscience and music therapy together wow. to this area of study. Right, and you mentioned that, you know, back then there wasn't sufficient technology to really study exact neurological processes because music is obviously a very complex thing. Yes. So um, would you say that now with the advent of like fMRI, um, how much has that technology really affected the study of music? Sure, you know, it, it cried a bit. Um, the, the fact that functional imaging um, at this point can actually be done, um, that, that the speed at which it's done allows for very specific information to be gathered. And because enough of these studies have been done that the artifacts and different things um, that would normally happen in, in these types of research paradigms, um, that those can be taken out. So um, the scientists have perfected a way to really look in real time at what's happening. The areas that they're able to look at are um, chemical changes in the brain, so some of the work that's been done at McGill University on emotions and feelings related to music have been studied and shown neurochemical changes when somebody has a peak emotional experience to music. There have been other studies that have been able to map out where some of the uh, origins to motor timing originate, which is really, really crucial for understanding how rhythm and pulse drive the neurocircuits related to or responsible for motor initiation. So you can imagine somebody with Parkinson's disease or somebody with a stroke or somebody who has a traumatic brain injury who has trouble moving on their own. If their brain can be excited through a pulse of rhythm, and this has been shown through neuroimaging, that we have a way of, of allowing that person to move if the right stimulus is provided. Um, there's also some, um, yeah, uh, musical preferences and, and, and things like that that we need, are being studied. Also, things like neuroplasticity, actual brain changes that happen after prolonged engagement in a music therapy or music-based technique, and um, something similar to that is happening at Harvard right now oh. in stroke rehabilitation, the um, speech rehabilitation of aphasia. 
where uh, a melodic, the, the very strict protocol for melodic intonation is being used to clients who have non-fluent aphasia, who over a period of several, you know, so many months, by actually showing brain changes in their recovery. Wow. Okay, so speaking of like different areas of the brain, it sounds like uh, music doesn't really affect necessarily one region, but many different parts right. because there's like the tone and there's the rhythms, so there's many different aspects. Um, so would you say that there's like specific regions that are very important, like that are right. affected there, by there are certain localized regions, le- um, regions that um, should a person have damage, get lost. For example, if somebody has a stroke in the right temporal lobe, okay. they may lose their perception of pitch or harmony. Uh, I had a patient who had such a stroke and she sounded like a robot when she was sung because uh-huh. she didn't have any tone in her voice. Um, at the, on the other side, there would be um, a localization for um, the form and style of music that may be very specific. So a person that may not be able to perceive beats or changes in patterns of music, right? Um, there are areas of the brain that are responsible for the motor timing aspect of speech, so just the rhythm, uh, not speech, of, of music. So just the rhythm of music is processed in one area. And then, you know, music isn't just the sum of the parts of, of, of tone and harmony and frequency and, and, and rhythm, um, but when all those parts are put together and they become a song or a piece of music that somebody listens to and then associates with um, a time in their life or a particular person or a particular um, situation um, or a particular feeling, all of those associations also become part of the music. And so you're looking at emotional function, you're looking at associative function, you're looking at short-term memory, long-term memory, motor timing, pitch perception, um, relationships, people. I mean, all these things become attached over one's lifetime with music. Right, because we were actually learning in psychology class how emotions we need as humans actually need emotions to form stronger memories. That's because right. you, when you associate like a very strong emotion with a certain memory, you remember actually better and over right. long periods of time. So it's interesting that like music, which is also connected with emotion, has kind it's of a memory enhancer. Yeah, it's like a, a very strong effect. memory enhancer. Sure. Right, that's really interesting. So speaking of like different types of music. Um, is there a specific type of music that is most beneficial for music therapy, you or know, does it depend? It, it depends very much. In fact, music therapy as a profession um, really uh, deals with the fact that um, music is a very individualized experience, and music therapists as professionals are trained at through academic training and clinical internships um, and board certification. Um, are trained at a very high level to be able to analyze how somebody responds to music, how that music is going to benefit them, and which aspect of music will be the most beneficial. Um, it's very hard to really generalize music responses to everyone. There's some things we can generalize, like we, we can often generalize um, what type of rhythmic pattern may help somebody move better because you know people are going to entrain to the very 
steady beat, but we also know that some people have perceptual damage to rhythm perception, rhythmic perception. And so those people may have to be trained to find the beat again. So when a patient comes in, say, and do you, is there like an evaluation of you know, what type of music would be best for them? Because I know it's very individualized, sure. but how do you actually evaluate what's well, best for yeah. them? So uh, the, first thing, the first thing we do is find out what their specific situation is. You know, did they have a, a recent trauma? You know, is, was it a car accident? Did they have head trauma? Is it a disease like Parkinson's, something that's progressive like Alzheimer's? Um, is it a psychological issue? Is it an emotional issue? All of those will direct the music therapist to uh, ways of engaging that person in music so we can explore where their blocks are, you know, where the, um, their disability is and where their ability is. Many times a patient who can't do something on their own can do it in the context of music. For example, a person with Parkinson's who's having a hard time with balance and, and walking uh, may walk very well when we're using music. And so we'll use, depending on what the goals and the areas of need are, we'll actually experiment with different types of, of music and sounds and rhythms and, um, and, and actually engage the patient in making music with us, even if they're not musicians, you know, directing them to um, repeat a rhythm or to interact in the way so we could see the full spectrum of what their capabilities are. And you mentioned people with speech problems and I happen to know that you've done quite a bit of research recently with patients with non-fluent aphasia. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit more for more information, more in depth in that particular sure. area, because um, I find that particularly very interesting. So, first of all, let's just begin with like a pretty basic question. Sure. So, what is non-fluent aphasia? Okay, non-fluent aphasia is a type of speech problem that is caused by damage to a certain part of the left um, area of the brain that's referred to as Broca's area. Oh, right. Um, people with this particular problem usually can comprehend what's being said to them, but they lose the fluency of their ability to say novel phrases. Um, they, they lose the ability to retrieve certain words. Um, they, they are able many times to sing full lyrics to songs, even though they can't tell you what they had for breakfast or uh -huh. where they live. Um, they may be able to... Um, give full phrases, um, typical phrases, like, oh, how are you? How's it going? So things that are part of their repertoire, they can still speak, but to tell you um, where they're going this weekend would be very difficult. So um, that's non-fluent aphasia. Okay. Um, so it sounds like non-fluent aphasia because of the damage to Broca's area, and this might be due to, like, stroke... Or, or traumatic brain injury, but usually stroke. Okay, um, so they're not quite able to form, you know, fluent sentences or phrases mm -hmm. to express themselves, as opposed to, um, to other types of aphasia where perhaps there is like damage to the Wernicke's area That's where right. they can't comprehend the language as well. Right. Okay, um, so for non-fluent aphasia patients, so how would you say music helps them? Because I understand that. Since, I mean, maybe if they've already heard a song, they're very familiar with the song, they're probably still able to sing it, and yet they're not able to form new sentences. Right. So there's kind of a contrast there. So, what causes? I, so there's a couple of things, and, these, and we're, still, we're still 
researching it because there's some um, different approaches that are being applied to help people with non-fluent aphasia. One of the um, best studied or, or most used approach is something that Helm and Sparks developed many years ago called melodic intonation therapy. And that's a specific uh, treatment that uses a two-tone um, melodic pattern up and down um, that requires the person to tap to the um, syllables of the phrases they want to say. And um, some current research is showing that engaging somebody in that very specific protocol uh, every day for a certain period of time actually helps certain people with non-fluent aphasia recover. The challenge with all of these approaches is that the patient over time has to learn to do this on their own. They have to be motivated to do it on their own, and they have to be able to internalize what the aspects of that technique mean for them. Another approach that we've been using for many, many years and with some success as well is using pre-learned songs, lyrics, to be the jumpstart um, or precursor to word retrieval. So, um, for example, having somebody fill in the blanks to a, a, a lyric that they know very well will cause them to have to retrieve that word in the moment, in a very quick time. And by doing so, over time, as they get improved in that ability to fill in the blanks very quickly, they, we've also seen that they um, do improve in the other types of word retrieval outside of the actual singing. So we don't know yet, but hypothesize that there's a priming aspect to singing familiar lyrics as a precursor to word retrieval. Where those networks are shared and how they inform each other, I couldn't tell you right now, but hopefully somebody <laughs> is going to look at, look at that and, and tell me why it works the way it does. But we know it works. We know that it actually helps certain types of people with non-fluent aphasia improve. Another aspect that seems to be very tightly connected, and it's something that's also part of the melodic intonation protocol, is the tap, the physical tapping as a self-cue for the speech. One of the observations we made and, and I wrote about was that a person with non-fluent aphasia who can't tap, who's, who's lost that motor ability, doesn't recover speech at, at, at the same level, or, or maybe not at all, as somebody who can tap. So it, it, it hints to the fact that the motor system, that if the stroke is too close to the motor strip and affects the motor strip, that that may be an indication that the, that the aphasia is more severe. And that person, until they can gain that motor timing ability, won't be able to recover speech. Well, so do you happen to know if there's any changes to the brain of people who are undergoing music therapy as opposed to patients who aren't? Right. Well, we haven't done brain images of our patients, um, but Godfrey Schlag in Harvard has been doing brain images of patients undergoing a very rigorous melodic intonation therapy. And he's beginning to show, at least in one case, and, and some of the other ones now too, that there's actually an increase in fibers or density 
and an area of the brain on the right called the arcuate fasciculus. Oh. Um, different from where that person's brain was prior to the treatment. So you see a very thin, you know, um, area before the treatment, and then after so many months of intensive melodic intonation therapy, you actually see a thickening of that area, showing that there was increased fibers or connections that were created. So I think Dr. Schlock, for the first time, is showing uh, very real neuroplasticity and brain changes as in response to a very specific application. All right, so it sounds like the music is obviously physically actually having an effect on the brain. And so even though the brain, you know, a lot of people have this misconception that you can't generate new neurons, but um, so I've heard recently that it's actually not true. It's actually not true. And right now, um, research has already identified uh, cells being created in the hippocampus. Um, So that's a part of the brain that we know can create new cells. Um, what we also know, and this is, uh, has already been shown many, many times, is that, the, that a neuron can create and continue to differentiate the number of dendrites and connections it has to other cells. So even though we may have a certain amount of, of neurons, that the, the, the networks and the, and the dendrites that now connect to other dendrites to create the, net, the neural networks mm-hmm. in our brain, those continue to differentiate throughout our life. So every time we learn a skill or recover a skill, there's a new set of connections that allow that skill to be preserved. So if somebody, you can imagine somebody loses a skill because of a brain injury, but regains that skill, whether they regain it because that part of the brain has healed, many times that's not the case. Many times it's the fact that parallel networks that also serve similar functions are enhanced through this repetitive type of treatment or this enhanced therapy of which music is that allows enough neurons to be stimulated to cause a change to happen or recovery to happen. So what is the actual success rate? Like, I mean, not you don't have to be very specific about yeah. this, but in general, um, how successful are patients, perhaps with nonfluentphagia or just with music you know, in, in general? In, in general, again, it depends on the, uh, on the population, but I could tell you that for people with Parkinson's disease, anyone, anyone with Parkinson's who's found and been able to use rhythm and music to help them move, Swip, <laughs> use it consistently and very effectively throughout their lives, and and some of them wonder why their physical therapists or doctors never told them how easy it was to be able to use music so effectively to help them in their daily life. Wow. I, I actually teach. I'm part of a, a teaching faculty for the National Parkinson's Foundation, specifically for that reason, because music therapy is so effective and should be basic treatment you know, or, or available to anybody with Parkinson's to be able to use effectively. Um, in the areas of speech, it's still something being um, researched and developed. Um, although people do recover um, speech, some level of, of communication ability through music therapy and through melodic insulation therapy, I think the challenge is, is that um, those types of treatments need to be done every day and several times a day in order to regenerate and recover function and most people just don't have the motivation or the time or the resources to be able to be in such intensive treatment for so long but if they were 
there is the, a high potential for them to improve. So it sounds like, although it's very, you know, it varies from case to case, um, it definitely sounds like there is a large impact that music therapy is having. Oh, abso- absolutely. Right. So it sounds like because music therapy can be applied to such a wide variety of disorders. Um, but I'm sure there are still skeptics out there who are very skeptical about, oh, music, how could that possibly affect our brains? Um, and it, it's almost like a political issue of, should music therapy be covered in healthcare, which is a very sticky issue. Oh, it's, um, I wonder if you have anything to say about that. It's, it's, it's really a struggle, especially in, in New York State. Uh, I've been working in the field for 34 years. Um, in, in subacute rehabilitation and long-term care, music therapy is not covered. Um, in a lot of private pay insurance in New York, uh, music therapy is not covered. It's covered sometimes under psychotherapy in Medicare Part B, for, uh, in partial hospitalization. In other states, it is covered. Um, in, uh, sometimes it's covered under educational programs, especially for, for learning to delay children, um, but not on the level that it should be. But it's not just music therapy, it's so many other treatments as well. Um, they have been proven over the years are also being reduced. I was just talking to somebody today whose speech therapy was cut after two okay. sessions because the person didn't show potential for improvement. Oh, you know, yes. so um, one of the things we're hoping to do is to be able to show that music therapy can actually address some of those hard-to-reach patients so that those traditional therapies can be more effective. And I think partnering, and we've been doing that here for many, many years, partnering with occupational therapy, with physical therapy, with speech therapy, and showing how the combination of music therapy along with traditional therapies can actually reach those sort of borderline recovery people and really help them recover, which would have a great impact on healthcare. But, you know, it's hard when you're talking about the arts, when the arts and um, when society or not society, because people, I think, value the arts in general, but people who have budgetary constraints, right. when they talk about what's essential and what's non-essential, they usually cut out the arts first. And that's the truth, but be it music therapy or, or music education, right. that's usually the case. However, however, um, neuroscience in the past couple of years is showing that children um, who are exposed to music and the arts actually have enriched neural networks and have a better capacity for complex thinking and also a better capacity for social integration and, and social awareness and interpersonal awareness. So if teachers think about the things that they have trouble teaching a child um, and, and if they were aware that music and art and engagement in those creative processes actually instill the right behaviors in child in children, um, they may not be as ready to cut the programs. Right. If they realize <laughs> down the line, you know, in the future, what the impact of those early programs will have on the mental and um, mental psychological and um, intellectual state of the people. And, and, and you and you mentioned yourself that music therapy is a very broad profession. Right. Very small compared to other professions, but but very broad. And because of that, the general public doesn't get to experience it on a regular basis. The only time they may experience it 
is when all the traditional therapies they've tried aren't working, and then they start searching. What else is there for me? And then they find our website, they find the, the Music Therapy Association, or they hear about it, and they, or they see it in the news and say, maybe that can help me. And then they come in, and then they experience it, and say, this is very important, I want more of this. So it's really about education, exposure, um, and informing uh, other, other therapists, other professions about the importance of music therapy so they can understand and be able to refer their clients to us. Right. I think down the line, insurance companies just, as, as people improve through the combination of music therapy with other you know, treatments, um, we'll, we'll be able to get some recognition and reimbursement. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a difficult issue to deal with. Um, but what would you say the future for music therapy is? From here on out, oh, I mean, we've made so much progress. Yes. What else is there? You know, I, I think it's, it's, very, it's very positive. Um, you know, when I started in the field, there were, there were opportunities for music therapists, but basically you had to create your own job. You had to be very entrepreneurial and be able to go into a new place and, and create a program. I think now what's changed quite a bit and what's very exciting is that young people in high school are hearing about the field of music therapy, are encouraged to go in to the field. So I've seen a, a real influx of the number of people entering music therapy and, and getting certified, but also the opportunities in behavioral health in hospitals and pediatric medicine. Um, have increased quite a, a bit that most hospitals that have those programs on site will look to hire a music therapist to work in those programs as part of their team. So that's yeah. very encouraging. Yeah. Um, in the areas of neurorehabilitation, neuro uh, Medicaid, certain types of waivers, Medicaid waivers, Medicare waivers can be applied for music therapy to be part of the rehab program if a person's in intensive Rehabilitation, or if they're in some kind of community-type um, rehabilitation program. So that's very positive, and that's increased tremendously in the past five, five years. So I think the future is actually incredibly good. Whether there's reimbursement or not, I think the interest in having the music therapist on staff in large facilities is, is increasing. Oh, so it sounds like, I mean, this is definitely not the end, nowhere near the end. No, no it's going to end. In fact, as science continues to inform us, about how pervasive music is and how powerful uh, the elements of music are to drive some of these basic brain functions. The more um, the more interested scientists are going to be to understand how it works, the more educated music therapists are going to become to how it works, and the more um, ready government and, and other officials are going to be to support it and to help it grow. After the interview, Dr. Tomeno informed me that many of her therapy patients were putting on a musical performance, and I was fortunate enough to be able to get a clip of their singing. Their show is a testament to the power of music in our lives. Thanksgiving is coming, it's coming. Amen. And thank you, Shandu. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Four. 
This has been WIG, What is Global Health? The podcast of the Journal of Global Health with Dr. Conceda Tomeno of the Centralite Health System here in New York City. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Tomeno. Check out more WIG podcasts from our three podcast series on music, medicine, and the brain, and find us online at ghjournal.org slash WIGH or on iTunes.